From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Monday, April 16th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. The confessed mass killer Andres Breivik pleads not guilty on the first day of his trial in Norway. Coming up, how survivors of last July's massacre feel about the trial. And later, new high-tech ways to track and count penguins. And why freedom of speech is something to laugh about in Singapore. Some people accuse me of being anti-government. And I'm like, dude, I'm not. I'm just pro-comedy. You know, I, everybody is game. It's fair game. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by WGBH, producer of Lydia Celebrates America, presenting weddings, something borrowed, something new. Lydia cordially invites viewers to be her plus one on this cross-country matrimonial odyssey. Tomorrow night at 8, 7 Central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Some painful memories surfaced today in Norway. It was the first day of the trial of Anders Breivik. He is the man who confessed to setting off a car bomb in Oslo last July and then going on a shooting rampage at an island camp for young people. Seventy-seven people died in one of the darkest days in Norway's modern history. Today, Breivik appeared in court to plead not guilty. He argued that he acted in self-defense. This trial is being televised, something that's unheard of in Norway. The BBC's Lars Bevanger was at the courthouse in Oslo. The indictment itself is pretty harrowing reading because it contains the names of all of his 77 victims. Uh, that took almost two hours to read out, during which uh, Breivik didn't seem to show any emotions. But later on, when the court showed a propaganda video that he himself had made, he burst into tears. Uh, and uh, all of this, of course, is very hard to take in for the uh, many of the victims and their families who were present in court today. What's on the video? Can you describe it? Well, on the video, he presents what he uh, claims is his political ideology, in which he argues that uh, he is at war against what he calls multiculturalism and the threat of Islam. So he's arguing he's not guilty as charged. He has uh, only acted in self-defense. He says he acted in self-defense. He also made a particular motion, and I wonder if you can tell us what the reaction was to it. When he was in court, he clenched his fist at one point, brought his fist to his heart, and then thrust his arm forward in what appeared to be an extremist salute. Can you tell us more about that and how he conducted himself? I think people are starting to get used to uh, the way he's acting. Uh, and the greatest surprise today, I think, was when he showed real emotion uh, and broke down in tears, albeit not over Uh, his victims, seemingly, but uh, over his own homemade video. Does the question of Anders Bering Breivik's sanity remain? That is a central question to this court case because we've had now two psychiatric reports, one concluding he was criminally insane and the second one, which was published only last week, concluding the opposite. The judges will have to decide whether he's fit to be sentenced to prison or whether he's not fit, uh, in which case he would be sentenced to psychiatric care. 
I wonder if you can just put into perspective what this trial means for the people of Norway. It is highly unprecedented to televise anything from trials in this country. They've decided to do so now because they deem this case to be of such importance to the nation that uh, people need to know what's going on. Most of it will be televised, uh, apart from his own testimony and also some of the more harrowing witnesses. It has changed society in, in a way, but in a positive way, if you like, that people say that they're, they're more secure now, they're happy with the way governments handle things and they feel closer to each other as a result of what happened. The BBC's Lars Bavanger is covering the Breivik trial in Oslo. As he mentioned, survivors of last July's massacre were at the Breivik trial today. Some of them say this trial is part of their healing process. The world's Laura Lynch prepared this report, which begins with some of what those in the courtroom heard today. 19. Lena Maria. She was in the big hall of the cafe and was shot at least three times with a pistol. 20. Elizabeth. She was in the big hall of the cafe and was shot three times with a pistol and a rifle. 21. The names of the people who died, the details of how they died, filled the courtroom with reminders that while Breivik is the center of attention, no one has forgotten those he killed. And then there are the survivors who cannot forget. Tori Bechdahl was in court today only because he hid in a toilet as Breivik carried out his massacre on Utoya Island. Bechdahl wanted to be there for the trial, but equally, he wants to be done with it. I was um, on sick leave for about six months. I'm you know, getting my life back in order. I want to, to the greatest extent possible, continue my life, really. I'm very much looking forward to this trial being over so I can get back to my life, really. Another survivor, Jord Nordmelon, remembers taking refuge inside a building on the island that day and watching bullets come flying through the walls. I think of what happened every day. Um, it's, it's a huge part of me and it's shaped who I am today. Uh, but I don't always think of it as a, as a bad thing. Uh, it has strengthened me in a way and uh, I know now that I care more about my family or my friends or um, I started appreciating the small things in life. Nordmelon's self-professed strength seems coupled with a determination that this trial will deliver the justice she says Breivik and his victims both deserve. As she waits for the moment when he'll begin testifying tomorrow, she claims not to worry about whether Breivik will get the platform he seeks for his extreme views. I think actually he's going to just sound stupid when he uh, talk about it. That's why it's even more perfect that we put together a fair trial for him, uh, that he gets to uh, utter his opinion. He's going to be judged in the system that he hates and he tried to destroy, just, you know, rubbing it in his face in a way, uh, that uh, the system works, and it works when we're taking him down as well. He didn't succeed a bit. Nordmelan and other survivors say they want to show Breivik that he has failed. He didn't kill them, she says and he didn't destroy the character or the spirit of her country. For the world, I'm Laura Lynch. The government in Singapore runs a pretty tight ship. The tiny city-state in Southeast Asia is known as a neat, orderly, and predictable place to do business. One thing Singapore isn't particularly known for is a sense of humor. This, after all, is a country where chewing gum is prohibited and where freedom of speech only goes as far as authorities deem appropriate. Still, a handful of Singaporean comedians are becoming increasingly vocal, and in doing so, they might be helping the government meet an important goal, as Kavita Pile reports. Burlesque and billions of dollars later, Singapore still seeking spontaneity. 
That alliterative subject line comes from a classified U.S. diplomatic cable released last year by WikiLeaks. The cable notes that the famously strict Singaporean government is trying to encourage Singaporean citizens to loosen up and be more creative. Which brings us to the country's best-known comedian, a transvestite named Kumar. Anyway, let's have a good time for all those who don't know me too bad. I'm approved by the government, don't worry. (laughs) The name Kumar means young man, though when this Kumar takes the stage, he's all woman. Don't worry. I'm the only woman in this whole bloody ballroom. I'm more than a woman and more than a man can be, that's all. Under four decades of the People's Action Party, Singapore has gained a global reputation for being clean, rich, hyperfunctional, and highly restrictive. Yet, as noted in the WikiLeaks release cable, Kumar's popularity signals that Singapore is giving its citizens more free reign, at least in the social sphere. Here's Kumar. A lot of people know that Singapore is very uptight. I mean, we are uptight and yet we are not. We are trying to loosen up because the authorities understand that we need to loosen up. We look like the first world, but inside we are still third world. You know what I mean? Soon after its independence from Malaysia in 1965, Singapore's economy was fraught with uncertainty. Today, Singapore is one of the world's wealthiest countries. Case in point, it's now home to the world's highest percentage of millionaire households. But with growing competition from China and India, Singaporean officials want to transition from a nation of exports and services to a more entrepreneurial, knowledge-based economy. That means encouraging risk-taking and independent thinking in a society where risk aversion and cautious thinking run deep. And that's good news for Kumar and his comedic colleagues. Hi, welcome to the Mr. Brown Show. I'm Mr. Brown. Type the name Mr. Brown into Google. The first result will take you to the site of Kin Moon Lee, a Singaporean blogger and comedian better known as Mr. Brown. Some people accuse me of being anti-government, and I'm like, dude, I'm not. I'm just pro-comedy. You know, I, Everybody is game. It's fair game. From 2003 to 2006, Lee wrote a weekly humor column for a print publication called Today. When the government criticized Lee's work, the paper suspended the column. Lee turned to the internet, where he discovered more freedom to document and dissect what he refers to as, quote, the dysfunctional side of Singapore life. Here's the opening from a podcast in which he mocks young Singaporeans as timid Jedis and portrays the country's senior statesman as Darth Vader. Welcome to today's edition of the mainstream media trying to be hit news podcast. Today, we bring you the dialogue between Jedi younglings and their elders, recorded live last week, then edited and made suitable for primetime viewing. And like Darth Vader, the government here can't eliminate the rebels. I'm 41, and uh, I've seen Singapore turn from pretty much a very restrictive place where things were run very tightly to right now where, you know, the government can't shut us up because we have Facebook and Twitter now. <laughs> they can't shut us up. That is until recently. After a drubbing in the 2011 general elections, the government is striking back. In contrast to its initial, quote, light touch approach with the internet, The Singaporean government recently issued legal letters to a handful of prominent dissenting blogs and demanded removal of what they regarded as rumors and defamatory content. As as a nation, we take an extremely uh, uh, cautious and conservative view towards uh, uh, any harm that can come from communication. 
Professor Cherian George is a Singapore-based media scholar and a member of a group called Bloggers 13, which advocates for internet freedom in Singapore. I think most Singaporeans would want to tell their politicians, well, just get over it. You know, this is what politics is like. Uh, and there really is no need to, uh, to use the law uh, the moment uh, you feel upset or offended by uh, citizens who criticize or insult you. There's little doubt that comedians like Kumar and Kim Moon Lee, a.k.a. Mr. Brown, will continue to push that envelope. Is someone saying bad things about you on the internet? Is your virgin white reputation being slimed by the pesky... And who knows if the Singapore government can lighten up enough to enjoy comedians like Kumar and Kim Moon Lee. Perhaps the creativity and risk-taking that officials are hoping for will materialize. For The World, I'm Kavita Pillay. You can see Kumar and Mr. Brown work the crowds in Singapore with their comedy. It's pretty good stuff. It's on our website at theworld.org. This is The World on PRI. That's Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Think climate change, and many people think penguins. The birds have become the emblem of the threats posed by climate change. That's because the habitat of several penguin species in Antarctica is literally melting away. But forbidding conditions there can make it pretty tough for scientists to know just how many penguins are actually there these days. Now satellites and digital technology are helping researchers get a better grip on penguin numbers. And at least for now, for one species, the news is good. Michelle LaRue is co-author of a new study on emperor penguins. She is a research fellow at the Polar Geospatial Center at the University of Minnesota. Give us the good news, Michelle. Well, the good news is that we have a uh, first ever full census of the emperor penguins, which of course are uh, made fam- were made famous by the uh, movie The March of the Penguins. And what we were able to find is that there are 595,000 emperor penguins in Antarctica, which is about twice as many as previously suspected. So how'd you find out the good news? Well, what we did is use uh, high-resolution satellite imagery. And so what we were able to do is kind of zoom into some of the locations where you would see a brown stain on the sea ice. And that is an indication that there's an emperor colony there. This is guano. That's right. Yep, this is their guano. And so by zooming into uh, the locations of their guano, we were able to actually see the individual penguins and then train the computer to differentiate uh, the differences of uh, between um, the individual penguins, uh, the guano that they're sitting on, and then the surrounding ice. So interesting, though, that you see the guano first and then the penguins, and then you can count. Does that mean that you counted every single penguin there? We were able to count um, roughly half. And so our estimate is about 238,000 breeding pairs. And so when we're counting the individuals at a colony, that is half of the adults that are present at the colony because the other half are foraging at sea. The satellite imagery allowed us to find seven new colonies that we didn't even know existed. Um, And so it's really being able to have that remote access to some of these really uh, dangerous areas to get to um, and harsh areas to get to that allowed us to count the entire population of emperor penguins. So it's kind of a super version of Google Earth. That's right. Yep. And 
the Antarctica and studying emperor penguins is about the most perfect test case you could have uh, for doing this kind of a thing. It's white sea ice. They have a brown guano stain. There's nothing obstructing our view. There's no trees in the way. Um, and so it's very easy to be able to see them. There's nothing else it could possibly be. When you see a, the brown guano stain on the sea ice, there's nothing else it could be other than an emperor penguin colony. So you have asserted, as have other researchers, that climate change has indeed affected the population of emperor penguins. Does this tell us that maybe the threat isn't as bad as you all thought? Um, No, not necessarily. And the reason I say that is because uh, the population estimates prior to this were incomplete. To be clear, what this research means is that we have a full estimate finally. Uh, Just because we know that there are double the amount of penguins than we previously thought doesn't mean that the population doubled. It just means that we know there are more than we had previously thought. And so the threat of climate change um, is still the same as it was before. We do know for sure that there is one colony that's already gone um, at the Dion Islands in the Antarctic Peninsula where the sea ice is no longer there during the key times when they need to be sitting on the sea ice. And so we already know that um, loss of sea ice has had a huge impact on at least one colony. All right. Where are you going to set your sights next, Michelle? Well, the nice thing about the this high-resolution imagery and, and one of the cool things about this study is that, for one, we know that we can do this. And so now you know, there's there's many ways we can move forward. First of all, we can start to monitor the populations of emperor penguins through time, but we can also see what other applications this could have for other populations of animals in Antarctica, such as Weddell seals um, and maybe some of the other types of penguins that are in, our, in Antarctica as well. Michelle LaRue, research fellow at the Polar Geospatial Center at the University of Minnesota. She has co-authored a new study on emperor penguins just published in the journal PLOS1. Thank you very much, Ms. LaRue. Thank you. We've got a link to the study as well as some great photos of the movie star penguins online at theworld.org. Now, if you can find all the world's penguins by using satellite imagery, you can certainly find a town in central India. The world's Aaron Schachter explains how Google Earth has changed one man's life. India's trains are notoriously chaotic and confusing. They certainly were for Saru Brearley. 25 years ago, he and his brother boarded a train in India, searching for lost coins or other valuables. He was five at the time. Saru and his brother were separated, and he ended up on another train. Saru fell asleep on that train and woke up 14 hours later on the other side of India, in Calcutta. He couldn't read or write or understand the local Bengali language. There are hundreds of languages in India. He couldn't go home because he didn't know where he was from. Saru became a beggar one of the many children on the streets of Calcutta. After some time, he was taken in by an orphanage and put up for adoption. An Australian couple adopted him and took him home to Tasmania. Fast forward a couple decades and Saru is still wondering where exactly he's from. One night I just said to myself, I don't know where my hometown is, but I do know where I ended up, and that was in Calcutta. So Saru settled on a formula to figure it out using Google Earth. So I kind of times a rough amount of hours that I was on the train with the uh, kilometres of the uh, speed of the trains. And I sort of put out a a ruler from Calcutta out and uh, it created a radius. And it so happens the very night where I found it, I was just sort of uh, a bit out of the circle and, and I zoomed down and bang, it just came up. It was the town of Kandwa. Using Google Earth, he'd found the waterfall and dam where he used to play. They were right outside town just where he'd remembered them. Recently, he made his way home to the neighborhood of Ganesh Talai, 
But when he got there, as he tells it, his former house was padlocked and derelict. As he stood in front of the building, a crowd gathered. Initially, he says, no one seemed to know his family. But the neighbors kept coming and talking to him. That's when I uh, struck gold. And they said, just wait here for a second and I'll be back. And when they did come back after two, three minutes, they said, now I'll be taking you to your mother. Saru says the reunion with his mother was awkward. I think she had a bit of trouble just grasping that, you know, your son after 25 years has just reappeared like a ghost. A ghost, perhaps, but not a complete surprise. Saru says his mother had gone to a fortune teller who told her she'd be reunited with her son someday. And that had given her strength. For The World, I'm Aaron Schachter. This is Patriot's Day in parts of New England, a holiday that's set aside to remember the outbreak of the American Revolution this week in 1775. Now for our GeoQuiz today, we're searching for a revolutionary field of battle, not the fields of Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, where the revolution began. Nope, we want you to name a battle that took place a lot later in the winter of 1777. It was considered a defining moment for George Washington. He faced British forces that were led by Lord Cornwallis in what is now a mid-Atlantic American state. That battle exemplifies the qualities that, according to the British National Army Museum, make Washington Britain's greatest foe ever. We're going to hear more on that and get the answer, courtesy of a military historian, a little bit later in the program. Our global hit and much more news also coming up on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, a British museum declares George Washington the UK's greatest military foe ever. Of course, it helps that Washington looked mighty fine on horseback. Washington was very aware of that fact, so much so that he had a kind of a a checklist of his favorite colored horses, starting with a pure white. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. A series of coordinated militant attacks in Afghanistan finally ended today, 18 hours after they began. In Kabul, the militants targeted a district that houses embassies, NATO headquarters, and the Afghan parliament. More than 50 people were killed, including at least 36 insurgents. U.S. officials say the attacks were the work of the Haqqani Network. That's a militant group that has ties to the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Shafula Afghan is a former Afghan police official who's based in Kandahar. He says that once the attacks began, he saw Kabul residents quickly take shelter indoors. 
I was in the city, moving in the city, and I was amazed by the people, that how the people just disappeared. A lot of people went to houses to be safe, to be secure. I was just amazed that in minutes people just disappeared from the street. One of the, the things that seems most disturbing, aside from the fact that this uh, the series of attacks went on for 18 hours, is that it transpired in what's known as kind of the Ring of Steel in Kabul, where there are embassies, the presidential palace, how was it that whoever the perpetrators were, and we can talk about that in a minute, were able to have such long access and do such damage? The good thing, as I can mention, is the reaction of that one security forces they did a very great job with their quick response. With this big number of uh, insurgents, it's not easy to stop people like, for example, suiciders who are, I mean, they are ready to be killed. So it's really easy for them to get to any point they want. They are in groups. One of them blew up himself that left the other to get into the situation. That's how they usually work. But can but I just interrupt, to, just to interrupt for one second, wouldn't that make them even more able to be apprehended? And this tactic of suicide attacks is not new to Afghan security forces. Most of the time, the Afghan security forces are not at that alert point that every moment you can expect a suicider. They, they weren't expecting it. Yeah, you cannot expect that. The most important thing is the intel. We don't have enough intel on that. The intelligence. The, the first thing, yeah. So you say that once the, the Afghan forces did respond to the attack, they responded well, but they also had help from NATO. There were NATO Black Hawk helicopters that ran seven strafing runs in order to try and, and dislodge the perpetrators. Could the Afghan forces have been as successful as they were without NATO's help? We started everything from zero. If it's the police, if it's the army, we started everything from zero. At least it takes 15 to 20 years, in my experience, to have a well-trained police and uh, Afghan army. So it's not easy to say that the are capable of doing that operation. They did their best. Well, then I wonder if America's withdrawal from Afghanistan is something that you feel as though Afghanistan is ready for or not. There are 90,000 U.S. troops there now. 23,000 are supposed to be leaving by the end of September. Do you dread the withdrawal or do you think that, uh, that Afghan forces will step up when America steps back? That will be not easy. We don't have the professional police. If you have a group of snipers, a very well-trained group of snipers within the police headquarters everywhere, they can tackle the situation much better than right now we are. We don't have professional criminal investigation department guys. We don't have police, counter-narcotic police force that we have. They are not professional, that they can collect evidence. We are lacking still on that side. You have uh, what sounds to be a good job. You get around in Afghanistan. You have a lot of contacts it would seem obvious that you would want to stay, but you're doing it against a backdrop that is extraordinarily dangerous and daunting, and it doesn't sound like you have a lot of confidence that things are going to get better anytime soon. How come you do stay there? If I compare my country back to time of Taliban before 2002 and today, there has been a big changes. For example, you have like six million children going to schools. You have universities. Like in Kandahar City, I was never expecting girls going to university. Now girls are going to universities. They are attending online courses. That's the kind of stuff that's happening on positive side that give me the hope that I'm staying in my country and I'm looking for a future that we will have a good future. 
Nice to talk to you. Uh, Shafula Afghan, who lives in Kabul, he was a former official with the Afghanistan police force. We spoke to him from Kandahar. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Our next story takes us to Germany and a clash between religious practices and rules about the slaughter of animals. How Germans slaughter animals they eat is strictly regulated more than in most EU countries. That's because many Germans favor animal rights and more humane slaughter methods. But Germans' concern for animals also has a dark side. The Nazis vilified the Jewish method of slaughtering animals. Today, it's the Muslim halal tradition of slaughtering that's in the spotlight. David Hecht has more now from Berlin. The methods of slaughtering animals are pretty much the same for Jews and Muslims. Both forbid animals from being stunned or knocked unconscious before their throats are slit. And both use the same sort of knife. Oivan Yakabov is a rabbi in Berlin and a shockette, someone trained to slaughter animals according to Jewish law. Rabbi Yakabov says both kosher and Muslim halal slaughter are more humane and respectful to animals not like the industrial methods common in Germany, which do not acknowledge the sacrifice an animal makes with its life. But historically, it's the Germans who consider Jewish butchering cruel and bloodthirsty. The notorious Nazi propaganda film, The Eternal Jew, shows gory scenes of Jews slaughtering animals. These images reveal the character of a race of people who conceal their crude brutality in the guise of religious piety. Immediately after taking power, the Fuhrer passed a law ensuring that all warm-blooded animals would be stunned before they're slaughtered. Kosher butchers were put out of business overnight. But after World War II, and having slaughtered six million Jews, it could be said that Germans lost the moral authority to tell anyone what kind of killing was humane. Today, Germany has a small but vibrant Jewish community, and kosher slaughtering is permitted. But Germany now also has a huge Muslim population, mostly from Turkey. German authorities have become less tolerant of their practice. In 1995, the Federal Administrative Court, one of the highest courts in the land, decided that Muslims had to stun animals before killing them, while Jews didn't. Every Muslim butcher in Germany either agreed to stun or pretended to. Every Muslim butcher except one. Rustem Altenkuper is a Fleischermeister, the highest qualification a butcher in Germany can attain. Since 1998, he has lived in the center of a medieval village called Werdorf in the state of Hessen. For seven years, Altenkuper's butchery went well, and he invested in the latest technology. But then in 1995 came the ban. He saw it as an attack on a basic human right. The Jews are allowed to practice the traditional form of ritual slaughter, but I, as a Muslim, cannot. Alton Cooper found a lawyer who agreed that this was an injustice. Rainer Nichols specializes in the German constitution. Because people living in Germany of the Muslim faith who want to obey by stricter rules with regard to food... They cannot be told to uh, become vegetarians. They cannot be told to buy um, imported food. Nickel represented Alton Cooper all the way to Germany's equivalent of the Supreme Court. It issued its judgment in 2002. The Constitutional Court decided in our favor, and in the decision expressly said, well, we have found a violation of fundamental rights. And the case was sent back to the administrative court. End of story, or so it would seem. On the one hand, we won everything, 
And on the other hand, we won the battle, but we lost the war. And Nickel and Alton Cooper have been going round and round in German bureaucratic circles ever since. It's very complex and complicated. I can't even count the, the times we've been to court. They've been in federal and state courts, courts of appeal, and the constitutional court twice. They've won every time. But the problem is that courts don't issue licenses. That job goes to a district administrator named Reinhard Strachschmalor. We have a special filing cabinet just for Alton Cooper. For me personally, the case is a huge burden, and I get pressure from all sides, including right-wing extremists. That's to say neo-Nazis, whose traditional hatred of Jews is now mostly directed against Muslims. A couple of years ago, Alton Cooper's barn was set on fire. Strux Malor certainly didn't approve, and he insists he has nothing against Muslims. But despite the ruling of so many of Germany's courts, he still thinks Muslims should not be allowed to slaughter without stunning, because in Islam there are ways around it. Der Mann kann wirklich nur richtig gut lügen. Needless to say, Alton Cooper doesn't think Strux Malor knows what he's talking about. In European Ländern, Belgien, Holland, you don't have to go to a Muslim country, he says. In France, the UK and the US, Muslim butchers are all licensed to slaughter without stunning. But what really galls Alton Cooper is that a local German bureaucrat can impose his interpretation of Islam. Even after Germany's highest court overturned the ban on halal slaughter, Strux Malor found all sorts of technicalities to delay or hinder giving Alton Cooper a license. His attorney, Rainer Nickel. We were again in the situation um, that we would have to go to court and challenge all these conditions individually. Last year, Alton Cooper got a license, but only to slaughter 30 sheep and two cows a week. This year, Struck Malor has said he is reviewing the license, so the slaughterhouse remains idle. Still, Alton Cooper is hopeful that in modern-day Germany, justice will ultimately prevail. Jews in Germany are yet to speak out on his behalf. Some say it's not their business and worry that if they did, they too could lose their right to slaughter. Others contend that if anyone should be speaking out about religious freedoms, it should be Germany's Jewish population. For The World, I'm David Hecht in Berlin. Here's another story with roots in Nazi Germany. Alex Cassie, who was a former officer in Britain's Royal Air Force, has died at the age of 95. During World War II, Cassie was captured by the Germans, and as a prisoner of war, he helped forge documents. Those documents were used in a mass breakout from the Stalag Luft III POW camp in 1944. That breakout was the subject of the film The Great Escape. The world's Alex Galifant reports. Alex Cassie was a forger. He was one of a group of men who inspired the character played by Donald Pleasance in The Great Escape, the film from 1963. And that's appropriate. At Stalag Luft 3, the individual was less important than the group. But in a British TV program, Alex Cassie did credit one man as the driving force behind the escape, a South African-born Royal Air Force squadron leader named Roger Bushell. Bushell was the model for the character played by Richard Attenborough in the film, for a while, Cassie and others thought he'd been killed. And then I remember a distinct note of elation when people said that Roger Bushel's coming back. And there he was, he was put in charge of escaping. One felt then that the thing was in safe hands. 
Roger Bushell put in place an extraordinary operation, codenamed X-Organization. The prisoners of war built three tunnels, codenamed Tom, Dick, and Harry. Those tunnels required elaborate planning, right down to the installation of a system that could pump oxygen deep underground. It was made out of tin cans. But Alex Cassie's work was about preparing for the journey beyond the tunnels, when, say, an escapee in disguise was confronted by a German soldier. A few years ago, a Nova documentary called The Real Great Escape uncovered some artifacts from the site of Starlag Luft III. One was a small black object recovered from one of the now-collapsed tunnels. His American archaeologist, Larry Babbitts. You can even see the feathering on the ends of the eagle's wing. That's the asphalt, isn't it? To get me out. Yeah, this is a stamp that you'd put over a guy's picture on an Ausweis. An Ausweis is an ID card. Alex Cassie and the other forgers created hundreds of them. But how did they make the stamps? Alan Bryant was another British airman held in Stalag Luft III. I had my flying boots with me, and I remember a chap coming round and taking my boots away. When I got them back, the rubber heels had been taken off, and there were wooden heels there, because the rubber heel was used to make rubber stamps, which you could then cut a swastika out to put stamps on passes. The passes that Alex Cassie forged had to be exact in every detail. They stained paper with tea to make it the correct color. They made their own ink by mixing soot with oil. It was work to which Cassie was well-suited. He was a talented artist. Everything had to be correct, right down to the date printed on the stamp. So when bad weather threatened the long-planned escape attempt, well, the passes they'd made would be of no use. And of course those would be wasted. And that would be an awful long time to have to do them all again. What we had was about nine months' work. As it turned out, the escape went ahead as planned. But Alex Cassie chose not to go himself. He suffered from claustrophobia and was afraid of holding back the others in the tunnel. But on March 24, 1944, 76 men did escape. An astonishing success. That is, until news came back two weeks later via the senior British officer at Stalag Luft III, Group Captain Herbert Massey. Massey came forward and said, and he was obviously deeply moved, he said, I was called to the Commandant's office this morning where he gave me the awful news that of the 76 officers who went out of the tunnel, 45 have been killed. Of those 76 men who escaped, just three found their way to freedom. 50 were executed, the rest again imprisoned. Alex Cassie remained a prisoner until the end of the war. He went on to be a successful psychologist and a painter. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, our global hits coming up. But first, back to our geo-quiz. Britain's National Army Museum recently conducted a poll. It asked this question. Who was Britain's greatest enemy commander? Historian Stephen Brumwell is a specialist on 18th century North America. And Stephen Brumwell, the winner is? George Washington. And he came out head and shoulders above uh, the other candidates, Michael Collins, Napoleon, Rommel, for example. Why did he win? Well, on one level, the actual damage that George Washington managed to inflict upon the British army and also the British Empire far outweighed that that had been inflicted by the other candidates that were up for consideration. I would also suggest that there were a a couple of other factors. One was uh, George Washington's ability not only to lead his men on the battlefield, 
but also to work in a cordial manner with the civilians in Congress who were essential for actually maintaining the, the revolutionary war effort. Meaning he was politically savvy. Well, basically, for example, his army was always massively uh, understrength, undersupplied. The old stories about bloodstained footsteps in the snow, for example, aren't just hyperbole. We have eyewitness descriptions of those things really happened. But what he did by writing and writing and writing, lobbying, 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 he made it very clear to those in power, the Continental Army of professional soldiers as opposed to militia was what was keeping the struggle for liberty alive. If that army collapsed, then so would the revolutionary struggle. And of course, this was pretty controversial at the time because there'd always been this great hatred of the standing army of the professional soldier. We should also mention that he really looked great on a horse. Yeah, well, Washington was very aware of that fact, so much so that he had a kind of a, a checklist of his favourite coloured horses, starting with a pure white and then descending down through kind of dapple greys and finally a dark horse. And however badly a lot of his soldiers were dressed, and once again, the stories of the poor ragged continentals aren't an exaggeration, he was always immaculate. And this was very, very important because when he was serving alongside the French, when they looked at Washington, they thought, now here's someone we can work with. He's got that kind of bearing, that demeanour. He looked the part. And there was one battle among the many that George Washington fought that you think provides a window into his character. Which one is that? The Battle of Princeton on the 3rd of January, 1777. Princeton, New Jersey. And by the way, we're looking for a geosite, and that is the answer to our geo-quiz today. What did he do so well there? Shortly before, several days before, uh, Washington had famously crossed the Delaware and inflicted a surprise attack upon the, the Hessians who were at Trenton, the German mercenaries there. Now, not content with that, Washington decided that the moment had come to try and exploit that advantage. So he staged another attack upon a British brigade that was at Princeton. He did this by way of a kind of a, a night attack where he tried to surprise the British garrison. Unfortunately, things didn't go quite to plan because one of the British regiments spotted Washington's army in the distance and actually attacked it. Now, this brought on an engagement which was not quite what Washington had planned. And uh, initially, uh, his forces that came into contact with the Redcoats were knocked into retreat. And at the crisis of the battle, when the Philadelphia militia were retreating, it looked like the British were going to be able to inflict a defeat upon the Americans by sheer aggression, by a bayonet charge. Washington rode upon the scene, and by his coolness under fire, which was a Washington characteristic, he basically, although it wasn't an easy thing to achieve, restored order, managed to counterattack, and that's what broke the British attack, restored the American fortunes, and I would argue changed the whole course of the American Revolutionary War. Well, thank you very much, Stephen Brumwell, historian and author, speaking to us from Amsterdam. Thank you very much. It was an honour. And finally today, a little musical mix and match. Meet a Serbian band called the Orthodox Celts. They sing Irish-sounding tunes in English, but with a Serbian imprint. Nate Tabak caught up with a band in eastern Serbia. In this packed, smoke-filled club in Niche, just about everyone is hoisting a pint as the Orthodox Celts take the stage. They're chanting the chorus to one of the band's most popular tunes, the drinking song. We're drinking beer, we're drinking gin, no matter what's in bottle, we're drinking everything. This isn't some Irish standard. The drinking song is straight from Belgrade. It whips the crowd of 20-somethings into what resembles a massive brawl, though no one seems to mind. Maybe it's a, it's a little bit weird, but uh, when we say uh, Irish music, I, 
I really uh, think of it as, as of my music. That's lead singer Alexander Petrovich. On stage, he goes by the name Asa Celtic. Petrovich says Celtic and Serbian music have a lot in common. They share rhythms, and then there are the lyrics themselves. The themes that Irish people sing about have the same, the same story and the same messages as our old ethno and folk uh, songs. Hard things that are interpreted in lyrics in so optimistic ways. And that's something that uh, people in Serbia can recognize and uh, find themselves in it. To talk about hard times in some kind of, in, in weird way, totally cheerful. Far away, far away. You're so far away from me, but I'll be back one day. Far away is just that sort of cheerful dark song. Petrovich says he wrote it imagining a man fleeing war in the former Yugoslavia. The man goes to the U.S. in search of the American dream. Instead, he finds himself stuck and broke. Uh, it's not the story of a Serbian who went somewhere. It, it's also the story of Irish immigrant who went to America. It's also the story of any immigrant who went to America and never made alive his dream. While the Orthodox Celts draw lyrical inspiration from Serbia, Petrovic's vocals do sound kind of Irish. Petrovic says it's unintentional. He says a few years ago he received a letter from a professor of linguistics at the University of Illinois. He claimed that the accent I am singing on is some kind of a very rare North Dubliner accent, which I didn't knew, of course. And that was a real compliment from someone who knows what he's talking about. But perhaps a bigger compliment is that the Orthodox Celts have inspired a few younger bands in Serbia to take up Celtic music. That's Irish Stew's Take Me High. The band is fronted by Boyan Petrovic, who's 26. No relation to Alexander Petrovic. Boyan is also the Orthodox Celts' newest member, Antin Whistle. When he first heard the band 10 years ago, he didn't realize they were Serbian. This was really strange. <laughs> I was like, is there a possibility for someone to play that kind of music in Serbia? And the music I really like, I could not believe it. <laughs> to Alexander Petrovic, it's not a huge leap. He says human experience, not nationality, is the heart of Irish music. I don't have to, to be Irish to be Irish. And of course you don't have to be Serbian to be Serbian. You just have to be, to be a man. Americans won't have to wait long to get a taste of the Orthodox Celts. The band plans to tour the U.S. next year. For The World, I'm Nate Tabak, Niche, Serbia. By lonely prison walls I heard a young girl calling Michael, they have taken you away Check out the pictures of the Orthodox Celts on stage. We've got a slideshow at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Lisa Mullins. We're back tomorrow. Now the prison ship lies waiting in the bay
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, the Freeman Foundation, and the PRI Program Fund, including the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.